Welcome to the iMatter Podcast, future-proof your business, career, teams, and organization. Here's your host, Gahan Pereira. I've been really enjoying the range of conferences where I've been speaking recently. A few weeks ago, I spoke to a group of financial planners, and then the very next day, I spoke to a regional local government group about the dramatic changes in their region that are coming up in the next 30 years. And this week, I'm speaking at a housing innovations conference, and then next week, to a group of property managers, and then separately, to a group of apprentice training organizations. And I love the diversity, but I also love the common threads, because as a futurist, part of my job is to help people understand what's around the corner in the industry, but it's also about helping them prepare for it, what I call becoming fit for the future, even if they don't know what's coming up. And that's so true nowadays. Uh, Even if you don't know what's coming up, you can be better prepared for it and ideally even lead it. And that's why I firmly believe in the crucial importance of strong leadership now. And that doesn't just mean the old-style gung-ho leader who rallies the troops and leads the way. I'm talking about the leader who brings out the best from the individuals in their team. Because one of the most important things you can do is build the judgment of your team members, and then they can use their skills and talents and their unique experience to help develop the organization, the team, and their own careers at the same time. See, I often come across leaders who say things like, I can't trust my people to use social media, for example. One wrong tweet could damage the entire reputation of my team and the organization. And you know what? They're right. But the solution isn't to ban social media, and it's not even to create layer after layer of checklists and approvals before something goes out on social media. The best solution is to build their judgment so they know what to do. Because you know what to do, because you've got that judgment built from years of experience and insight and now wisdom. And the best thing that you can do for your team members is to build their judgment as well. And it's a vital part of being fit for the future, especially if you're leading a team in a large organization. Because large organizations do offer a more stable work life than a small business. And that's good and bad. Uh, On the good side, there's a buffer between the teams and the outside world. So people work in a stable, predictable environment with less stress and more confidence that they can cope with the work rather than being constantly exposed to this fast-changing world. And even when there are external pressures, the organization can absorb them or delay them or counter them so they don't affect normal operations so much. So that's good, and that stability can be good, but it can also make you less flexible and less resilient. If you remember the poem by the little girl with the curl in the middle of her forehead, when she was good, she was very, very good. When she was bad, she was horrid. And that's what happens in many large organizations, and it's a price that you pay for this stability. So people react badly when big things happen. Actions take longer, everybody's protecting their own turf, and being under the public microscope means that even small decisions get scrutinized in lot of detail. And most of all, most people are simply caught unaware when their boat hits the iceberg. Now, small businesses are a little bit different. They deal with big changes all the time. And because they're more exposed, uh, working in a small business can be a little bit uncertain, frenetic and frightening, but it can also be more dynamic, more exciting and more inspiring. And as an internal leader in a large organization, you've got the opportunity to have the best of both worlds because you can show your team members the excitement of a dynamic work life and still enjoy the relative security of a stable workplace. And this is more than just empowering your team members by giving them more responsibility. So empowerment's good, but you can go further than that. Because what you can do is build their judgment. 
and metaphorically you do this in three ways. So first you break down the walls and what I mean by that is you help them understand how their role fits with the rest of the team, with the organization and ideally with the outside world. Then you raise the roof so you expose them to higher roles so they can see the bigger picture beyond just what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. And finally you open the door, you give them the chance to speak up and be heard inside and outside the organization. And the good thing about this is that everybody wins because their work becomes more meaningful, they're more motivated and they can suggest ways to improve the organization. And if you work in a large organization, you also help them avoid that false sense of security that comes from being protected or perceived to be protected. And they can see beyond the timesheets and the spreadsheets, they can hear from real customers and clients, and they get a better feel for the organization and the industry in general. And of course, this helps you as a leader, because by building their judgment, you give them the opportunity to take on more responsibility, and you can trust them to do the right thing. And when you build that judgment, what you're doing is you're teaching your team members to work from guidelines, not from processes. So they follow rules of thumb rather than filling in forms and getting endless approvals. So you explain the ground rules and then they use their judgment to follow them and sometimes to break them. And I love this idea of ground rules. And in fact, there's somebody who loves them more, and that's my guest on today's episode, and that's Steve Simpson. And he's created some groundbreaking work in the area of unwritten ground rules, or what he calls UGRs. And they can be positive or negative, and they can make or break culture. And so Steve talks about them in the context of organizational culture. And I really want to talk to Steve about UGRs, because I see the real potential for them to be great opportunities, but there's also the potential for them to really damage and harm an organization's culture and reputation. So I talked to Steve about UGRs, how they work, and what leaders can do to use them if they're positive, or work around them or get rid of them if they're not positive. So let's join the conversation now. Hello, this is Gihan Pereira, and today I'm speaking with Steve Simpson, who's an expert in workplace culture. And culture's been around for a long time, and a lot of people who are talking about culture, and I reckon it's a little bit like the way that a lot of people are talking about it, but not many people are doing something about it. And Steve is one of those people who actually talks about culture. He's a professional speaker, but he also uh, uses his practical experience working in-house with organizations to really, truly help them shift their corporate culture. Uh, he's the author of a number of books and I hear there's another one coming out just around the corner. Uh, he's got uh, academic qualifications. He has a master's degree from the University of Alberta and he's worked with organizations around the world, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, the US, the UAE, South Africa and throughout Asia. So I'm really excited to be speaking with Steve today. So welcome, Steve. Thank you, Gihan. It's good to be here. You've worked in this area for a long time. Tell me a little bit about how you got here and what, why you're so passionate about culture. Originally, Gihan, I started working, uh, when I created my own business, I started working in the culture, in the customer service space, not so much in the frontline customer service delivery, but more in the getting a customer service ethic through an organisation. I, I was confounded at the time and continue to be so about how many organisations deliver ordinary service or worse. So I have some research skills, I could do some customer service research and also did some uh, work with leadership teams and others in the customer service area and um, soon after doing that I discovered something strange that was happening. Uh, in some organisations the work that I was doing was having a dramatic impact but in others that wasn't the case. Uh, there might be an initial boost of mo uh, motivation and energy but it would soon tail off and not much would change. 
So I pondered for quite some time as to why this was the case. It was the same person doing similar things in different organisations and it came to me that it was the culture of these organisations that was determining the extent to which, in essence, I was successful in sharing the insights that I had with these places. So that took me down the path of workplace culture because I thought, unless that is right, then we can talk customer service all we like and deliver as quality customer service stuff as we like, but at best it's going to have limited impact if the culture isn't right. And so that led me down the path of uh, corporate culture or workplace culture. I've heard people talk about the key role that culture plays in an organization. Yeah, I'm sure that you've heard many people say, Steve, that, that, that old saying that culture is strategy for breakfast, and yet most leaders are looking at strategy rather than culture. And what's your take on that? How important do you think that culture really is within an organization? I agree with you 100%, uh, Gihan. A lot of people talk about culture, <laughs> but whether or not people do much about it is quite another matter. Mm-hmm. In fact, this is reinforced by research we did recently where – To be honest with you, we stumbled across what I now think is a terrific question. I don't think it was necessarily a terrific question by design, but nonetheless, we'll claim it. Because included in the research, we asked a question I now am eager to put to any leadership team. In fact, only yesterday I was working with an organisation and asked this question of the leaders. The question we uh, we asked in our research was this. If the culture of our workplace was to become as good as it realistically could, how much improvement would there be on people's performance slash productivity? Uh, It's not a trick question, Gihan, and I reinforce that point to people. I say to people, zero is a legitimate response. You might think the culture realistically is as good as it's going to get. So zero is a legitimate response. In our research, and what I tell people when I ask them face-to-face, is that we had a sliding scale ranging from zero, that's a legitimate response, to 10%, 20%, 30%, up to 100%, and then 100% plus. We were staggered by the responses, Gihan, and I continue to be staggered by the responses. For example, in our research, we discovered that 96% of non-managers, you might as well say 100%, felt their culture would improve by 20% or more if the culture was improved to become as good as it realistically could. Mm -hmm. 56%, more than half of non-managers, Um, felt there would be a 50% improvement in performance. Now, these aren't small figures. Uh, Only yesterday when I was working with another organisation, a private company, um, a very successful company, I asked this very question and I put figures on on the whiteboard in front of the leaders as they shared them, shared their personal view. And it was widely agreed that the average was around 40% improvement in performance mm. if the culture realistically, realistically was improved to become as good as it could. These are staggering figures. And I said to the leaders yesterday, I'll say it to any group that gets a similar response, I will say, let's presume you've been wildly over-optimistic and let's halve that figure. So we'll go from 20 to 40, from 40 to 20%. Would you take it as a leadership team? Mm. Now, of course, it's a stupid question because, of course, they would take it. So my point is this. The capacity for substantial improvement rests at our feet. It is the culture of the workplace. And frankly, I get excited by that prospect because in a context where leaders are searching for incremental gains to give them 1%, 2%, 5% improvement, there's massive capacity. It's the culture of the workplace, which frankly is talked about but largely untouched. Mm. 
So, I'm intrigued, Steve. I mean, those those statistics are pretty staggering. And and yet you said these were the non-managers. I wonder in your research whether you also uncovered whether most managers and leaders actually recognize that maybe their culture requires improvement uh, or are they all sailing along thinking everything's fine and it's only the non-managers and the people who are working at the front line who actually realize there's something wrong and could be better. Uh, Gihan, your intuition is absolutely correct, the intuition that's implied in that question, because we did find quite stark differences, and I continue to find quite stark differences in people's views about the culture, depending on whether they're a senior leader, middle manager, or non-manager. And it's almost without exception that the senior leaders feel their culture is more positive than the middle managers, who in turn see their culture more positively than the non-managers. Now, uh, while yesterday is still fresh in my mind, Gihan, I can tell you that yesterday I made that point to the group. This was uh, a group of 50 of the uh, international leaders of the company. And I said to them, who is more likely to be correct, senior leaders, middle managers or non-managers? And of course, they said non-managers. They know what's going on. They're at the ground. They're, you know, they're, that's, they're, they're in tune with what's really happening. So I say to leaders that Often, despite your best intentions, you are prevented from truly being in tune with the culture. By virtue of the fact you have leader in your title, you are often shielded, despite your best efforts, often shielded from the real culture. And that's that's both um, exciting and scary for leaders. Yeah, and does that create a situation where it's very hard for leaders to actually lead some change? Because, um, as you say, almost by definition, by having the word leader in their title, uh, they are shielded from some of the problems that are happening further down the hierarchy. Look, I, I think there is, in some leaders, a reticence to move in the culture space. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, a, there's potentially a few things that are occurring to make that happen. And one is a lack of a business case. Um, while culture is talked about increasingly, and I think it's the, the, the increase in, is quite dramatic in terms of how much it's talked about, but I think it is, it remains talk and people have difficulty getting their head around the concept in terms of what it actually means. In fact, there's a risk that leaders conceive culture as a soft, flowery thing that sits out to the side and gets in the road of our real work. Now, while there is a lack of a business case for understanding and improving the culture, obviously leaders will be reluctant to move on it if there's not a business case for it. But then if we can get past that hurdle, and by the way, I think our research creates the business case. That's why I think it's such a good question. Um, but if we can get, if we, we can then create the business case, there's another hurdle. And the next hurdle relates to the extent to which the leader is prepared to be confronted with some potentially uh, confronting material mm-hmm. because if, if we if we open the curtains into the culture there's going to be stuff that emerges that leaders feel uncomfortable about uh, no one deliberately goes out to create a less than ordinary culture but the fact remains we have a lot of cultures that are less than ordinary and peeling back the curtains to explore this uh, is is very difficult and confronting for leaders so um I think they're the two major contributors to leaders perhaps talking about this but not doing much about it. 
Okay, so that's interesting. So let's assume that we have got a leader who's willing to get past the fact that there isn't a business case. And as you say, Steve, these are seen as soft skills, but you know, as, as other people have said, soft skills are the hardest. And also, probably those soft skills are the things that are going to lead us forward in the 21st century rather than some of the hard skills. So let's assume we've got an enlightened leader who's willing to look past that. Uh, what do we do now? How do we peel, peel back the curtains and look behind? Well, Gihan, um, you know this. We use my UGRs concept. Okay, great. Um, this is where that comes in. Uh, in fact, I've, I've um, overlooked the third contributing factor yeah. to why culture is not genuinely addressed by leaders. And uh, it's a critical one. And, if, and how could I forget this, Gihan? The third contributing factor is the complexity of the concept of, U- of culture. Um, while it's talked about People have difficulty getting their heads around what it actually means, what we don't understand, we don't manage, what we don't manage, we, we become victims of. And I think many people, including leaders, feel victims of their prevailing culture, knowing that it's not as good as it could be, but really feeling stymied as to what we can actually do about it. So that's where my concept of UGRs, I think, has uh, uh, real merit. Uh, UGRs stands for Unwritten Ground Rules. Unwritten grand rules. And the best way to think about UGRs or unwritten grand rules is that they are people's perceptions of this is the way we do things around here. Now that's a critical definition. People's perceptions of this is the way we do things around here. Of course, the key word in that definition is the term perceptions. I'll come back to that later. Examples of UGRs that I've come across in the workplace over the years include things like around here at our meetings. It isn't worth complaining because we know nothing will get done. Around here, the only time anyone gets spoken to by the boss is when something is wrong. Around here, the company talks about the importance of customer service, but we know they don't really mean it, so we don't really have to worry about it, and so on. Now, it's the UGRs that drive people's behaviour, yet, incredibly, they are seldom talked about openly. Uh, It is the UGRs, I put to people, that constitute your culture. I propose that if we understand UGRs, we understand culture. It's as simple to understand as that. It's more difficult to change, of course, but the first step in grasping culture is actually understanding it. And I think that's where UGRs serves um, as a massive uh, benefit to people because everyone gets UGRs. I've literally taught this to gold miners working in a gold mine in South Africa through to the most senior of CEOs. And people, there is no difference in the time people take to get it. It actually helps ground the whole concept of culture. And, and even the term, Steve, unwritten ground rules, people will go, yep, I get that, I understand it, even without having to understand the depth of it, they, they get what you're talking about. The incredible thing, Gihan, is that everyone does get it, but you'd be amazed at how many people come up to me after I've spoken at a conference or worked with a team, mm-hmm. and they will say, how come no one's ever talked about this before? It's yeah. so obvious. Yeah. The, the, the paradox is that everyone does get it, knows that they are there, and yet it's not raised to a level of consciousness for some reason, Gihan. It's, it's really strange. Again, to, to build on uh, yesterday, I shared with the group, I, I, I discovered a UGR in a school when I was at primary school. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned very quickly when I was in grade three, so I must have been about eight or nine years old, and I changed primary schools. I learned very quickly at my new primary school never to use the term back in my old school. I could come up with an idea, 
but I was never to press preface it with back in my old school because by using that term, I was instantly, it was instantly blocked. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to know about it. So I learned this as a, as, as a primary school kid. So it's a human, it's a function of being human beings. UGRs exist in any group of people. It can be a church, a sporting team, um, uh, the workplace, any group of people. And yet it seems to operate at, at a level of, um, well, it doesn't appear to operate at a level of consciousness for most of us. I think what you're saying is really interesting for the modern workplace, Steve, because I'm thinking of the opposite of UGRs, which are, what would that be, WGRs, written ground rules. Um, organizations now have to operate with fewer and fewer of them because things are changing so fast. If you just try to work with, with the documents and processes and systems you used to use 12 months ago, they're out of date. So it seems that there's, a, there's an increasing need for more and more ground rules, which are unwritten and implicit, and they just get built up through teams. And I'm wondering whether you think that you UGRs can also be positive rather than negative. So you can have uh, affirming UGRs uh, as well as some of those negative blocking UGRs. Uh, 100%, Gihan, you're right okay. on there. So yeah. UGR, the examples of, I've given you, of course, are negative, but uh, uh, that's not the real world. There is always going to be a mix of uh, positive, negative, and those in between. And uh, the question is, what is the extent of alignment between what is written and the UGRs, or what, what is written and what is espoused, what do leaders say, what's the alignment between that stuff and uh, the unwritten grand rules. Mm-hmm. And, and that's core to this. I wrote an article a little while back, uh, Gihan, which was titled Ditch Your Values. And it was only partly tongue-in-cheek because my thesis in the article was that you are worse off for having values that you are not serious about mm. than having no values at all. Mm. So, um, uh, you know, be, be careful what you ask for and be careful what you proclaim. There are tensions for leaders at so many levels. And one that's recently occurred to me is the tension between being the positive provider of news, being the positive face of the organisation, being the inspirer of staff within the organisation, but not overdoing that. In part, our politicians have, have lost standing because they are now failing to acknowledge real issues. There's this spin around everything. So there's a real tension for leaders about to what extent do we spin in the face of people? And of course, they can't do the reverse. We can't, we can't get, get morose leaders who are wallowing in self-pity and what have you. But they've got to find a balance between um, putting a positive spin on things, but not putting total spin on things to be able to align what is said and what's in the documents versus the, the unwritten ground rules that are really happening within an organisation. And that's quite a big mindset shift for many leaders, isn't it? For Especially leaders who've been leading for a long time and who have been used to being the, like, if you like, the hero leader, the person that other people look up to. They, um, they have their position, the hierarchy. They have their title on their business card. And they've, they might even feel with the best of intentions that they're expected to take on that role. And what you're saying is, no, maybe you need to step back and let other people um, shine as well. Well, absolutely. Um, there's implications that flow in at so many levels. Like um, the organisations that I've worked over the years, many of them have reconsidered their induction and orientation mm-hmm. um, because UGR's impact on the alignment, the external versus the internal brand alignment. And um, people who are joining an, an organisation, here's an interesting um, way to think about UGR's. People who are new to an organisation, irrespective of their level of seniority, are quieter 
than they otherwise would be. Yep. Why? Well, I put it to people, we stay quieter to check out what the UGRs are. Now, we don't have the term UGRs in our heads, but in fact, that's what we're doing. We're staying quieter to check out what, what the UGRs are. Why? In order that we can conform. That's the power of UGRs. Now, this applies at the very senior level right down. So a person who is new is checking out what the, how things really are around here. So this has implications for induction and orientation. To what extent do we spin at induction and orientation about the way we do things around here? Because what happens is a person goes to an induction, they're told this is the way we do things around here, then they go and find out the truth. They will look for cues and clues to deduce the UGRs. So this this alignment thing, again, has implications for people who are new to an organisation. And you could argue the worst thing you could do is to build up a person's expectations when they're starting a job and then to unleash them on the workforce for them only to discover that things are the opposite to what they've been told at induction and orientation. Now, that's a stark example, but there's, there's variations on that that have implications at, at many levels. I think that's right. In fact, I was thinking of an example recently. I know somebody who was employing somebody and they found that the, the employee left very soon after uh, during their probation period because she said that it wasn't even induction or orientation. It was in the interview. She said that you sold me something that, I, that it didn't turn out to be uh, what I expected, yes. uh, even in the interview process. Yes. Uh, and, and well, perhaps that organisation is better off with having them having left at that point. Yeah. Because yeah, it's exactly. worse, it's worse to train people up over months, uh, and then the, the person finally to decide this is not for me. They've, they've uh, sold me a pup, um, and I'm out of here because the UGRs are quite the reverse. Yep, exactly. So Steve, okay, so we get this idea now. We get UGRs, we understand it, and as you say, it's a simple concept, but certainly not simplistic, and people get it as soon as you talk about it. Um, so what? So what can you do? If you, if you are a leader and you recognize that there are certain UGRs in your workplace, and they're not aligned with the written ground rules, or the written way that things are, the official way that things are supposed to work, um, what can you do? Um, there's massive opportunities. That's where I get truly excited. This group yesterday, when they averaged 40% in terms of their assessment of the capacity for improvement, I said to these people, this is a massively successful organisation. Look at the potential that still lies within. I mean, that is such an exciting proposition. There's multiple things we could do. We, we, when I work with organisations, we walk them through a five-step process, which I won't have time to share all of them with you, Gihan, but there's some key elements that I can share with you. One is, I think, to understand the prevailing culture. So um, our, we, our first step is to say, what is the aspirational culture that we need in place to satisfy two criteria. What's going to make this a great place to work and what's going to ensure our success into the future? Too few organisations consider that question, articulating the aspirational culture that's necessary to make it a great place to work and to ensure its success into the future. In fact, to the extent that organisations do not do that, I argue that leaders are abrogating their responsibility. We need to paint a picture of what the culture needs to look and feel like for it to be successful and to make it a great place to work. Not to do so is to fail to capitalise on the talent within. 
the second step of our five-step process says once that culture has been identified, it, it is incumbent on us to find out what the prevailing UGRs are with regard to those cultural attributes. So, for example, one organisation we worked with, they identified a terrific cultural attribute which was necessary for their future success. And this is this was really unique, Ihan, and I think terrific. They said quality interdepartmental relationships was a cultural attribute they needed to be successful into the future, one of a few. Mm-hmm. I thought that was terrific. So what we then did is we found out what the prevailing UGRs are in relation to that and the other cultural attributes. And we did this by leaning on world-first research that we did into UGRs uh, way back, soon after I created the concept, by getting people to complete what we call a lead-in sentence. So for quality interdepartmental relationships, we got everyone in the company to think about the way we do things around here and to anonymously complete the sentence around here when it comes to dealing with other work areas. Um, people complete the sentence, and then when we do this online, we get people to self-categorise their response as having a positive, neutral, or negative impact overall. So, for example, if somebody writes around here when it comes to dealing with other work areas and they, they say, good luck, it'll never happen, mm-hmm. they tick the negative box. Mm-hmm. If someone writes, uh, you get a lot of support from other work areas and we work together well, they tick the positive, somewhere in between will be neutral. We collected this from everyone uh, across the organisation for that and the other key cultural attributes, and we feed this back to the organisation, and that... Um, is gobsmacking, Gihan. The stuff we get back in what we call a UGR's stock take uh, is gobsmacking. And it, it really shows, what we say to people is, we are now seeing the world through other people's eyes. Whether or not you agree with their perception is frankly irrelevant. That's their perception. We've captured it. And we have to understand how they are seeing the world through their own eyes. Uh, their perception might be wrong. Irrelevant. We're capturing it. So it's like being a mystery shopper, isn't it, Steve? Like, uh, I'm sure that organisations are shocked by what mystery shoppers report back to them. That's a good analogy, Gihan. Um, that's a really good analogy. In fact, I've not thought of that. That is a very good analogy. Um, it takes some courage to do this, um, but I argue, uh, what's the option? You know, mm-hmm. what, what, what's, what, so do nothing, um, or, or treat this seriously. I might say it as an aside, this sounds highly arrogant. But I, I can't see the flaw in my argument. I think most culture measurement tools have got it wrong because most culture measurement tools, the vast majority, are saying, here is our template and we are going to measure you against our template. I think it's the wrong way around. It should be as I proposed. The company, the organisation says, this is what our aspirational culture looks like. Now tell us what our, what our UGRs or our culture is in relation to those key cultural attributes. That to me much makes so much more logical sense because we're finding out what the culture is around those aspects of the culture which are most important to our future success and to make this a great place to work. Yeah, great. Yep, that totally makes sense. Okay, I hope you've got time to talk about the other three, Steve, because I'd love to hear what those other three in your five-step process are. Okay, so our first is called Envision. That's uh, painting a picture of the of the aspirational culture. Yep. The second is assess. That's doing the stock take and involving people, as many people as possible, preferably everyone, in finding out what the current UGRs are in relation to those key cultural attributes. The third step is what we call teach, and that's to say 
there is value in teaching everyone in the organization about the concept of UGRs. I say oh, that... Oh, so, okay, so teach them about the concept of UGRs specifically, explicitly, not just teach them about where we're going to, where we'd like to get to. 100%. I yeah, argue okay. that many people are sub- subscribing to less than positive UGRs, but doing so unconsciously. And I also argue that simply teaching people about UGRs, doing it in a fun way, which is the way I always do it. We have a lot of laughs, have a lot of fun, but at the same time, we're hitting people between the eyes with a concept they know is there, but they've never brought to a level of consciousness. And I argue that teaching people about UGRs of itself can often improve the culture. Why? Because some people are subscribing to less than positive UGRs, Mm -hmm. but doing so unconsciously. All of a sudden, learning about UGRs forces it to a level of consciousness and now people have to make a choice and by the way it gives them hope because they realize that their behaviors contribute to the culture which previously they might not have considered so that's an enormously powerful step that's the step we call teach Mm -hmm. where we really try and spread the word about UGRs and have a fun way of doing it the fourth step is called involve and that says let's involve as many people as possible preferably everyone in crafting positive UGRs by which they'd like the, the, the culture to be characterized into the future. This can be linked back to the key cultural attributes or values where they complete the sentence around here and they say it as though it already exists. So I'll give you an example. The one I gave you before where the organization says their key cultural attribute was quality interdepartmental relationships. I would say to leaders and to staff involved in this, I would say if that was alive and well, what's a possible positive UGR that would be in place and people start they say around here and we say it as though it already exists so people might say around here when you need help from other work areas uh, they're more than happy to give it Um, it's framing it in language that everyone gets because that's often a problem with values they're in they're they're sort of motherhoodish words we need to Bring a, we need to create a bridge of understanding to help people understand the aspirational values or key cultural attributes. Uh, that's a fun exercise. The fifth step is what we call embed, and that's to say, how do we translate the talk of all of this into reality? And I argue that we must have at least one non-negotiable strategy in place, and that is we have a standing agenda item at meetings where every two or three weeks, Every person in the organization goes to a meeting where there's an agenda item that says, how are we going with our culture? And there's two parts to it. What are we doing well? What are the opportunities for improvement? You see, Gihan, I argue that people deduce what is important. Uh, In a mining company, why is safety genuinely important now? Well, it's been driven home. People lock the talons into safety. They talk about it. They review it. They they ram it home. It's, it, it's, it's, it's there for everyone to see. That hasn't been the case with culture in most organizations. Mm-hmm. So I say let's lock the talents into culture and a person who starts new with an organization after two or three weeks goes to a social function or speaks with their family after two or three or four weeks and somebody asks, what's this place like? They say, you wouldn't believe it. I've never seen a place so serious about culture. They talk about it. They're open with one another. They're prepared to accept some criticism, plus um, share some rewards and recognition of people who are, who are doing good stuff. It's, it's amazing. So we've got to embed this into the DNA of the organization, if you like, so that it's completely widespread. It becomes non-negotiable, if you like. The whole notion of culture is not 
negotiable. And we talk about it and don't let it go. And what I love about your process, Steve, and both the concept and the process is that it is simple but not simplistic and certainly not obvious. And what you're doing is bringing to awareness uh, a lot of something that should be top of mind, but quite often just gets put aside and put shoved to one side because of pressures and stresses and things happening and things going on around you. And you go, okay, we'll address this sometime in the future when things get better, when, when things slow down. But of course, that never happens. Uh, 100%. There's a couple of things in what you've just said, Guy, and I think simplicity is key. I, I cannot believe... I am amazed by the extent to which there is management speak that remains in so many organisations. It's a, it's a kind of talk that does not resonate with staff. It's not the kind of language. It's not the sort of sentence construction that, 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 that people in the workforce use. And yet managers speak, you know, I, I sometimes, to be honest with you, I sometimes shudder at the word model, mm-hmm. model, you know, just, it just it's, that word tends to lead me off into academia, and you know I don't want to provide disservice to people who who have good models and what have you. But I, I just think we've got to be careful about our language, and so I think simplicity is key. Um, and the other is the timing of this, and you know when's the best time to start? Well, yeah, there's never a best time to start. Probably yesterday is the best mm-hmm. time to start. Uh, but I go back to the, the business case for this. Well, now let me come at this from another angle. And I actually put this to another senior leadership team that I was working with. I gave them a UGR that was possible, that was poss- possibly in existence amongst this leadership team. And I said before I showed it to them, I said, I don't wish to be too confrontational here, but this question is offered with a degree of love. Okay. So don't take this as me hitting you across the head. But the, but what I put on the screen was this. Is this a UGR? Around here, tackling the culture is too difficult and will get us nowhere. And I think that might be in existence in some leadership teams. Mm. It's all too hard. It's all too difficult. So the timing's not right. Um, providing excuses, if you like, for not grabbing a hold of this. Well, I think part of the benefit of the UGR's approach is not only the simplicity of the concept, but the simplicity of the five steps. Yeah, I think I totally agree, Steve, and I'm so grateful that you that you were able to present that so succinctly, but also with enough depth for people to go away and you know, implement this in the organisations. But I also know that you work with organisations, and I know that through our conversation, you've used the word "we," and I know it's not just you; it is a team of people. So tell me, what sort of clients you like to work with, and what sort of services you offer for them? Gihan, we work with the whole gamut of uh, of industry sectors. Um, Last week, I was working with the uh, teachers at a secondary school in uh, in Melbourne. In November, I was working with McLaren Automotive in uh, the UK. Um, last year, we were working with um, – I do have a business partner, as, as you implied there, Gihan. Steph Duplessis is a great man. Yeah, he is. My best mate uh, who's based in uh, South Africa. In fact, we've just, we're just about to release our latest book on UGRs called A, a Culture Turned. In essence, any team, Gihan, where, where culture is important, and I don't, I don't think I know of a team where it's not. Um, but but it, it doesn't. It's not limited by industry sector or whether it's government, private, not for profit, because we work with all. Uh, so our ideal client is a uh, leadership team that is um, keen and prepared to get into this, uh, because a leadership team that is only half serious about this ought not take us on, because mm. you'd be worse off the going halfway down the path 
they're not going down there at all. So great, Steve. How do people get in touch with you if they want to know more about what you can do? Uh, there's plenty at the UGR's website, Giharm, which is ugrs.net. There is a heap of information there. So you know, if anyone is interested, I'd invite them to uh, spend some time at the website. If you'd like to get in contact with me directly, my email is steve at ugrs.net. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Steve, for sharing your ideas. I'm going to give you the last word. Any last thing that you'd like to leave us with? I'll leave you with a question, Gihan, for people to consider. Uh, If the culture of our workplace was to become as good as it realistically could, how much improvement would there be on people's performance slash productivity? Now, if that question yields a response with a figure that is high enough to get you interested, I'd encourage you to think about your culture. And it might not be using UGRs, but think about your culture. Involve people in thinking about the aspirational culture that you like to fight for and get joint ownership towards fighting for that culture. It's, it's a really exciting prospect. Steve Simpson, thanks very much. Thanks, Kihan. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Steve. Steve and his business partner, Steph Duplessis, do some amazing work in organizations around the world. So please do get in touch with them at ugrs.net. So just before we finish up, a quick note about the next webinar coming up in my Future Proof webinar series. I'm really looking forward to this one. This one's called Great Minds Don't Think Alike. It's about thinking. And it's about the thinking patterns that you need to know and avoid as a leader in our future. So some of the things that you're going to learn, I'm going to show you five common thinking traps that hold you back. I'm going to tell you the biggest mistake that leaders make that stifle thinking within their team and the three power words that the best leaders use to create more opportunities. So if you're interested in that, come along to the webinar. It's on Thursday the 14th of April. It's free and you can register at seeingintothefuture.com. That's seeing into the future.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and found something valuable for your personal and your professional life. And if you did get some value from it, I'd love it if you could do me a favor and give me a review and a rating in the iTunes store. And that helps to promote it to other people as well. And if you want me to share ideas like this live at your next conference, check out my speaking topics at gihanperera.com. You can also find out about my mentoring programs if you're interested in one-on-one work for yourself or your teams. And if you do want to engage with me in other ways, again, go to gihanperera.com where you can find my blog, my newsletter, my podcast, videos and webinar series. They're all free and they're all designed to help you leverage the potential of the individuals in your organization, your team and, of course, your own potential as well. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. You've been listening to the iMatter Podcast. To subscribe, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit iMatterPodcast.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.